Today is Wednesday. It's May 31st, 2023. It's now 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, it's John Williams. Thanks again for dialing into the Mincing Rascals podcast. We're going to broadcast portions of this Saturday night at 8 o'clock. And you can always listen to me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. Hey guys, Brandon Pope, host of On the Block on WCIU with Block Club Chicago and host of the Making Podcast on WBEZ. I'm Austin Burke from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to by emailing me, ericzorn at gmail.com. I want to wish everybody a happy June. It's the most popular month in Chicago, according to according <laughs> both to John Hansen and to readers of my newsletter. I took a poll, and June is the best month in Chicago, so let's all get out there and enjoy it. Yeah, our colleague uh, John Hansen said, okay, Chicago months ranked, and you and he got a lot of traffic out of that. I don't know if I said this on this podcast, but I want to amend my vote. I'm now moving December up to number two, guys. How about that? Ooh. Shocker. Are you doing special stuff in December that nobody knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Hawaii. No, I, uh, <laughs> you know, as I told Eric on the radio the other day when we were talking about it, um, and my son is the one that kind of kicked me in the butt about this. He goes, Dad, why did you say December was like seventh on your list? We do all fun things in Chicago in December. We go to Songs of Good Cheer with Eric Zorn and Mary Schmeek, and we go to the music box and do the theater thing, you know, watch the movies, and we we do it. We do it. So I've now moved it up to number two. What were your one, two, three, Austin? I don't remember now. I don't think I gave an answer. I would probably, on the spot, say September, June, maybe December. I mean, I, that's compelling. Yeah. I do. I have fond memories of Chicago in December. You're not angry at the winter yet? It's no. December, you know? Well, January since I got sucks. I got cross-country skis. I have a fireplace and um, Chicago Athletic Association. You go there to the lobby of that hotel. Yes. Huge fireplace. It's very cozy. You watch the snow come down over Millennium Park. That's nice. I've never thought about it this way. I guess I'd go with June is the best one for sure. Uh, Juneteenth is during that. Um, Lots of great festivals happening in June. Uh, Second, I'll go with May because I love Cinco de Mayo. Um, and third, I'll go with December because Christmas is, is great and my birthday's in December. So, <laughs> yeah, two for one. See, Eric, I've got my thumb on the scale here now. This does not reflect <laughs> what you were discovering. I actually want to talk about festivals in a little bit. I'll ask you guys, if you were in charge of a festival near the city, would you cancel it? But before we do that, the city council in Chicago put on quite a show today before a vote on spending $51 million on migrant care. The council chambers were up for grabs. I'm here to support the emergency spending to assist the recent immigrants to our city of Chicago. But... A number of you sitting here today may be immigrants and first generation of immigrant parents who are benefiting from I didn't say you, I said a number of people may. Uh, please, well, please listen up. I so, want to respectfully hold so, on a second, uh, brother. So the parents hold on a second, brother. Hold on. I need you all to respect this brother's position, and when it's your turn to speak, we'll do the same. Okay? All I'm saying is, 
The brother gets an opportunity to talk. We call that democracy. Please continue, sir. I didn't see it. I was reading Heather Sharon's tweeting in real time about it. Brandon, you watched it, did you not? I did. I watched uh, quite a bit of it, and uh, yeah, it was fiery. It was it was one of the more fiery city councils that I've ever seen, just from the beginning, from the public comment all the way through. Uh, new Mayor Brandon Johnson had to call for decorum several times, even had to pause city council for a moment. Um, but the baffling thing was it seemed like they allowed a lot of the people that were shouting the most to stay within the council chambers, including uh, pretty popular city council public commenter George Blakemore. Um, he was very vocal um, and opposed to the uh, $51 million uh proposed spending that ended up passing 34 to 13. Uh, He even at one point yelled out, it sounded like he's the one that yelled out um, to Byron Cicho Lopez of the 24th Ward for him to go back to his country, which um, is just completely uh, vitriolic. So it it got nasty. It got fiery. Lots of shouts, lots of anger, lots of hurt. Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor of the 20th Ward, she uh, had a very tearful passionate speech um, where she voted yes to the spending but expressed the hurt and frustration she feels as a black woman how she feels like other communities are always prioritized over the black community um however she doesn't feel like that's reason enough for the vitriol and the negativity hurled towards uh, asylum seekers in the city so uh, you just saw a lot of emotions boil up here at that city council meeting um, it was it was fascinating but also just really ugly were there many people speaking out on behalf of giving the migrants this level of care? Yes, there were people that were speaking out on behalf of giving the migrants that that support, that financial aid package there. But they got shouted down often by hecklers and people who were very much against. So it was just just a wave of just nastiness. Um, I think Brandon Johnson put it well, the the ugliness of democracy. You don't want to see the ugliness of it, but it got pretty ugly pretty fast. The, um, the, the soul of Chicago, right? His campaign fight. is an inaugural speech uh, theme. It's an inaugural speech. But, uh, you know, the, the, the issue, it seems to me, it boils down to, I, I think it was Alder, Alder Person Moore who said, that uh, he uh, the analogy he used was putting the mask on uh, to your yourself before you put the mask on your child in an airplane if a, you know the mask comes down from the ceiling you're supposed to make sure you're breathing first and i think he was sort of analogizing that to the fact that we have so many problems here in the city that need immediate influxes of cash and help and and so on and to direct those to these newcomers uh, feels insulting. And, and you know, Jeanette Taylor was saying the same sort of thing, which is like, you know, we, all these, you know, we have all these problems with violence in the black community and we don't do much about it. And then all of a sudden these people come in from, from Central America and we're like, oh, here's $51 million. I, I understand that feeling a, a lot. I, I can see why that engenders a lot of bitterness is the sense that the city has not paid the attention to these crises that are, that are, that are chronic, but then there's something emergency comes up and all of a sudden, oh, we've got money for it. And so I, I understand where their, where their anger is. So I mean, that seems to be where this, it's hard, it's hard to say that there's like bad people or evil people on either side of this, of this debate. I mean, it's, it seems like one where you can understand the passion on both sides. I think the chaos and anger today is a downstream consequence of the complete dysfunction, inadequacy, and unprofessionalism of the city council as a body. And there was a great story by McDumkey in Block Club Chicago 
about a committee that we have in our city council that was created in early 2022 called the Committee on Immigrant and Refugee Rights. And it was chaired by Alderman Reboiris, who was a, an ally of Mayor Lightfoot. And this was essentially created to give him a favor. Uh, and they created this committee. And in the summer, we start to see this crisis pick up. It's fully in force in the winter. It's coming back in the spring. You have people sleeping on police station floors. You have uh, people closing schools and, and or turning turning schools and field houses into makeshift shelters. This committee did not meet one time for more than a year. And its purpose ostensibly is to debate this stuff, to talk about it, to bring officials, to, to ask them questions, to discuss solutions, to have people give public comment. And instead, it's it's it does nothing. And it, and it speaks to the fact that these committees and Brandon Johnson made a really, uh, you know, classic Chicago mayor move, not reforming the system at all of naming all the people he wanted to give favors to be committee chairs. The committee chairs don't use those committees to do anything significant policy wise because they don't want to challenge what the mayor wants to do. And instead, as McDunkey lays out in this piece, all of that staff for committees, it's not a lot, but there's a budget in their committee. There, there, there are staff members allocated to that committee. They go do ward work for whoever the chair of the, the committee is. So it's just a completely dysfunctional legislature. And this, you know, um, this is just a consequence of it. And you see it not just on immigration. You see it on the Committee on Public Safety almost does nothing of consequence on public safety. The Committee on Transportation can't even get the CTA chair to come testify. Yeah, yeah, hardly do. That's true. Right. It's just as a body completely uh, ineffective. I want to read from Heather Sharon. Go ahead. Oh, I just, I, well, I just wanted to ask the question. Okay. So they didn't meet, but given that they're sort of incompetent anyway, how would that have plugged this? Yeah, maybe the meetings, maybe it's good that they didn't. On the, on the upside, at least they didn't do anything. <laughs> That's somewhat true. That's somewhat true. I mean, maybe it was better that they didn't meet, but, but why have a legislature at all if you're not going to have, you know, yeah. and why have us pay for it? Why have yeah, us pay right, for it? Right, right, right. Well, so here's what Mayor Johnson told Heather Sharon. I'm just quoting from her live tweeting today. Here's what Johnson told me a week ago about the rising tension between black and Latino Chicagoans on full display today. The tension that you're feeling, that we are all feeling, has more to do with the fact that we have had for too long black residents that have had to bear the brunt of previous administrations and their austerity budgets. In fact, if you listen closely, Brandon Johnson told Heather, who's, of course, been on this podcast many times, if you listen closely to the testimony, black residents are not mad at migrants seeking asylum here in the city. You know what they're upset about, he said? It's that communities have been disinvested in. And he said he was going to invest in those communities. So they weren't. And did you get the sense of that? That's kind of a fine point to parse from a raucous hearing, Brandon. But they weren't mad at the migrants. They were mad at the city for once again making them second. Yeah, I think that was the overall sentiment, even though there were some people there that said some things that were kind of the opposite, seemed pretty anti-immigrant. Um, anti-migrant, but that doesn't represent the entire whole. I, I think the majority, uh, they're not anti-migrant. And Alderman Jeanette Taylor made a good point about this. She even said, if I vote no on this, it doesn't mean that I am anti-migrant. And if I vote yes on this, doesn't mean that I'm anti-black or selling out. It's just a tough situation all around. 
I think the tough thing for communities that have been disinvested in to grapple with is $51 million. It feels like it came out of nowhere. And there's been lots of demands and questions and asks for things as simple as a Chuck E. Cheese in South Shore, <laughs> like a, a movie theater, a bowling alley, things like that. Just small things that kids can do, families can do. So they don't have to go way outside or anything like that, find, find outlets to do other things. Um, and they're not given. And so the thought process is, oh, wow, $51 million all of a sudden popping up and it's going straight to um, asylum seekers. And the other thing is that $51 million is going to expire. It's going to run out within a month or two. Like it, it's it's not like it's going to be able to sustain this ongoing, fast moving train. Do we even have the money to sustain that? Meanwhile, communities for decades have been suffering and, and begging for resources. And it just seems like we kind of just we have it now and we're giving it to somebody else. So I understand the pain and the hurt, especially for those who grew up here, who, who live here, who struggle here and have been burned by Chicago time and time again. It's it's tough. It's very difficult to disentangle the feelings that these people will have about about the money and about those who are asking for it or receiving it. I'm not sure that the that the asylum seekers are are demanding this money. They just they've created no. this but their very presence, which is not even their choice in many cases. In most cases, they were bused here or flown here. They and and so they're here and they're badly in need of of food and shelter and medical care and and what are we supposed to do i mean i i think we do as a city i agree with the votes who voted yes on this uh, but it does throw into relief the fact that that you're just talking about brandon that these communities have not been invested in the way they should be that that there's a lack of, uh, of of resources being directed to the problems that afflict some of our disadvantaged communities and you can see why they're saying hey what about us and it's not like it's not it's just right it, that's the question We're, you know what about us not we don't care about them and and but that's it's a it's a fine distinction to make but i think it's i think you're right about that though one of the things that frustrates me about the fact that this is all boiled down to you know where does the 50 million dollars go when what brandon says is exactly right which is that sure that may house some people for a month or feed some mouths for a month but that's going to evaporate extremely quickly the real purpose of a legislative body should be finding out solutions beyond that. There's so many other resources that could be brought to bear and partnerships uh, and use of existing city resources that could be brought to bear to deal with this and done in an open, transparent manner where people are debating and putting things forth. But it's not. And for instance, one of those things is, uh, you know, if you're the city council, pass you could pass a resolution saying, hey, we really need the federal government to come in right now and make sure that every single one of these people who wants a job has the ability to go work while they're seeking asylum. Right. Something it, things like that. Right. Thinking outside the box about how to how to deal with this. And instead, it just comes down to this sort of like it's it's the scarcity mentality of where this this relatively small in the grand scheme of things amount of money goes. Yeah, it's at 51 million. There's a lot of money and not a lot of money. And it's budget surplus money from 2021's budget. I'm a little confused about that. What's the deal with this money? Can you guys explain to me how Chicago doesn't have a surplus? Everything in Chicago, I thought, had a deficit. We we had $51 million laying around somewhere? 
I believe it's COVID dollars. I think it's federal dollars that were given during during COVID. That, you know, that was my understanding too. Although somebody corrected me earlier today on that, but so this is COVID money that hasn't been clawed back, by the way. And boy, you better hurry up and spend it because they are going to take this money back. So this is COVID money that the state, the city got, the city got, and they need to spend that. And I guess they can spend it any way they want. There's no rules with the Chicago budget. With like, it, even just looking at this, you become blind because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like, the, there are no rules for how this money is spent. Well, but. And, and of course, if, if we think that this that the conversation now is raucous, imagine what it's going to be when it's fifty-one million dollars that we're really going to have to cut from another from another program, from other needs, other services, in order to meet this need. Because I don't think the need's going to go away. Uh, you can help. You can allow or facilitate some of these uh, asylum seekers to get jobs or allow them to work. But the, the housing needs, the medical needs, those things, those things are not going to go away in a month or two. And we're going to be looking at more expenditures and more bitterness, uh, which is why I, I keep getting coming back to the idea that this ought to be a federal problem. This is not Chicago's problem. It's not El Paso's problem. No. It should, it should be, it should be the United States of America's problem. And the federal government should, should, that should be their money and it should be coming in to deal with this on, on an urgent basis because it, it definitely is a crisis. It definitely is an emergency situation. And the alternative is what? You say, well, you keep keep living in police stations or, or we don't care where you live. We live under the viaducts. Uh, we're not going to help you because we, because we're our, our, some of our other communities still need help. I, I don't see that. No, I don't think anybody does. And it does seem to be a little bit not in my backyard, because even when it wasn't about the $51 million, nobody seemed to want them housed in a school or some building in their neighborhood. And I've been very generous about this because they haven't decided to come to my neighborhood. And I wonder how I would feel about that if they were. But I must say, I have felt like marginalized communities could have a little empathy for these people. And yet there is my friend, Pastor Corey Brooks, who runs a church and school and community center on the South Side. And he was not a fan of housing them near there. And he's not a fan of spending this money this way. So it's it's so tough because none of these asylum seekers asked to be here. In the same boat, black people in this country didn't ask to be here either. So you think there would be some sort of like... <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Or, you know, I think right. there would be some sort of connecting point there. But I think it also plays into what's been said for a long time and is well known, that while the black community overall tends to vote along the same lines as liberal causes and, and things like that go, vote Democratic, oftentimes their true views lean conservative. And I think you're seeing that really bubble up here. Um, there's been some infighting going on between the Chicago GOP and an organization called the Southside GOP, um, which is mostly black Republicans in the Southside GOP, feeling like they, they're being boxed out of the conversation here. And a lot of the people who are doing these press conferences um, and those vocal at these city council meetings are part of that Southside GOP coalition there. And it's it's everyday people. It's people that maybe you wouldn't think would be uh, along those lines, but they've sort of been radicalized in this moment, if you want to call it that, because of what's going on right here. So I find it fascinating just overall what we're seeing about the conversation around sanctuary cities, the move by Governor Greg Abbott. How much longer will this keep going? Seems like he's going to keep doing it, but also how it's 
making the conversation about immigration go further than just yeah. Texas and the border, right? Don't you suppose Greg Abbott is loving this, right? I mean, this is oh, so his... having a field day. Well, but I mean, and he's making his point well, isn't he? Imagine if we were Texas or a border community. It, it's this time's a thousand. This is the point he was making. We're not equipped to handle it either. And what do we got? 8,000, yeah. maybe 9,000 now? Something's got to right. be done. You got 500 people on a police station floor. They got one-year-old, two-year-old kids. Like, yeah. that's inhumane itself. We, like, it, it's a responsibility, I feel like, of, of, uh, of an American city to help people out. Like, it's, it's, our, it's our duty. Well, that's it. I, I, I'm with you on that. that. It's a responsibility of an American city. So Eric's right. Uh, this is yeah. a federal problem, but it's our problem today. That's why I say spend the $51 million on this human problem here today. I don't right. know that $51 million is going to fix the South Side anyway. But uh, you also, yes, but you also understand the argument from the other side, which says, oh, you've got $51 million, you're going to spend it on, on these newcomers to Chicago. And meanwhile, my neighborhood, my schools, my housing stock has been going down the drain for all these years. And we've not considered that an emergency. We've not considered that a high priority. I hear I hear that that view, which is why this is such a difficult issue, and and why I I can I can hear I can hear people the complaints people are making, and I and I understand them. I understand where like Corey Brooks might be coming from. It's like he represents people who have been disenfranchised or feel disenfranchised and dispossessed, and and all of a sudden they what they say, well, what about us? I I understand that. That's why that's why this is such a a, a difficult issue. So in Europe, which has had migrants, you know, politics and crises and extremism uh, f- far more regularly and uh, in far more extreme ways than the United States over the last 10 years. The debate in the conversation is rarely about do we want more or less immigration? The, the conversation gets centered around our health care system is being overrun. Our housing system is being overrun. It's large government programs, and that's what the debate is centered around. And people who harbor actual, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment uh, talk about those things when they want to talk about reducing immigration. And what I worry about is when the uh, using uh, uh, welfare and other programs as the only debate around immigration is going to just engender more anti-immigrant sentiment rather than focusing it on, uh, listen, we've had (laughs) many, many more immigrants in the United States than this coming from, in many cases, far worse circumstances over the last, uh, you know, uh, 100 plus years in this country. And how were they able to assimilate? How were they able to make a new and better life for themselves? Almost in every case, it's the ability to do meaningful work. And when you are in this bureaucratic nightmare of many of these asylum seekers, they can't do that. So I just think that it's important to include that uh, in the conversation or else it can go down a pretty dark path. Well, when I get to be king, if the federal government can tell 53 and four-year-olds that in order to get SNAP benefits, you have to work, then let's tell people coming into Chicago, here's work. Let's find a way to immediately employ them, give them some kind of legal status. Uh, that's, a, that, that's a federal fix that would work locally. And I don't know where the key is to that, Eric, but doggone it. They're right there. Let's, let's find work for these people. I don't know what that work is. I don't know how you're going to do it. That's not my job. But isn't that an obvious path? No, it is. I think you're absolutely right, John. No, you're absolutely right, Eric. Okay. So <laughs> since the last we spoke, 
the city endured its most violent Memorial Day weekend since 2015. 59 shot, 11 killed. Uh, Mayor Johnson says this is intolerable. Um, So I guess he isn't such a good mayor after all, is he? Or maybe it's too soon to judge. Maybe it's too soon to judge. Maybe. But predictably, (laughs) when the summer arrives, the bullets do too, Eric. Well, yeah, I'm going to push back a little bit on this on this uh, sky is falling narrative about greatest most violent weekend since 2016. I mean, we're talking about pretty small numbers here. We're talking about minor differences in in, in numbers of people and things that are are probably just statistical blips. I think it's certainly fair to say that the level of violence in Chicago is too damn high. It's on par. It's need, on par. We, we do need to do something about it, but but to, I I thought that the headlines about this being like the worst weekend is it it made it sound like we had had some major statistical change versus I think kind of a fluctuation the kind of thing that you're going to see um, and I don't I would certainly not put this on on Mayor Johnson he's what he's been in office for two weeks now so uh, you know and and I, it seems like they were able to control from my, from my reading of the of the news stories was that they were able to control. The kind of sort of undifferentiated mayhem that you saw like downtown and in Millennium Park that we didn't see. It was a shooting on North Avenue Beach, but but for the most part, you, you weren't seeing that kind of frightening mob activity that it got people all upset um, a month ago for good reason. But um, so so maybe that and they had those peacekeepers out. Uh, thousands of people of with well, thirty was it? Okay, well. Well, that well, maybe that was the uh, upgrade, but there was thirty people they were going to add from these churches and community groups wearing the wearing the yellow vests, yeah. and, and they yeah. they may have played a role. And apparently, there was also a pretty strong effort to have barbecues and other other events in the neighborhood so that the people would stay there rather than venture downtown. So, I mean. All in all, yeah, we live in a city with a lot of violence in it. A lot of people get shot and killed, unfortunately. And I, but I don't necessarily think that it was like we need to all start clutching our pearls about this past weekend. Well, uh, one of our listeners sent me a picture uh, from Saturday of the Riverwalk, which is you know the that's where the beautiful people are, and it's the beautiful part of Chicago. Anybody can go there, of course. But anyway, it was packed. On Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, there was thousands of people and there were boats streaming up and down the river and all of the tables at the city winery were filled and all the every it was it was like a postcard of Chicago. Those people had a great time in the city. Um, I felt safe. I was at North Ave Beach. I was I was out. Were you there the day of the shooting? I think it was Friday afternoon. I was there Saturday um, and then I popped by a little bit on Sunday as well. And I was also I was in Bronzeville. On Sunday too. So I mean, violence Memorial Day weekend. I, I hate to say it like this. I just, ugh. but it's it's going to happen. It um, happens everywhere. It happens in every big yeah. city. Uh, yeah. By the way, I hate to say it's normal, but that's what it is. Sadly, you know what I haven't done was look up a popular. I was thinking this would be a work for Pete to do, <laughs> but take any population of three million people. How many shootings? If you say, all right, add up the populations of Colorado, Oklahoma, Wyoming, Idaho, I don't know. Go wherever you got to go. Give me three million people. What would be the number of shootings or deaths per any population of three million people across the country? Because that's the Chicago, what are we, 2.6, I think is now the latest census, something like that. And then the metro area is closer to eight. I think there's a little context there that would – makes sense you forget that there's that many people 
in the city that we're talking about. To say nothing of the visitors, that's the population. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago, there was that story, again, headlined in the Sun-Times. Eric, you made me think about this. One half of the people in Chicago have witnessed a shooting. Now, we talked to the people that did that research and wasn't as simple as that made it sound. That, that made it sound like, oh, my God, half of the people in Chicago have watched someone else get shot. And at the end of the day, I said to the guy, okay, just answer this for me. Because he kept talking about what was the phrase for the three cohorts. He kept talking about three-year cohorts. They studied thousands of people over 20, 25 years. And, and, and some of those people witnessed a shooting outside of Chicago. It didn't happen in Chicago. There was sort of this statistical blip of this three-year cohort of people who were living in the city during its most violent time in the 90s. And yeah, they were uh, young people in the city who were most prone to it, and they skewed the thing a little high. But I said, okay, at the end of the day, are you telling me that half of the people in Chicago right now have witnessed a shooting? He goes, no. (laughs) It's less than that. Well, that's not what the headline said. He says, I didn't write the headline. He, in fact, wrote a book about 15 great neighborhoods in Chicago. He says, I hate to see this thing getting spun that way. But it was a lot more work than the average reader or maybe news writer was going to invest in it. So headline, boom. I mean, I remember on this podcast, I think everybody put an eyebrow up and said that the common sense would dictate that that's crazy. And it makes sense that that was like a misreading of the reporter or sensationalization of it. Yeah. But to the point that like, pick, let's just pick any random group of 3 million people. Like we can compare Chicago to our peers on homicides and on shootings. And we're a lot higher. Like we're more homicides in New York city and LA combined per capita, way higher than those places combined. We can compare. Um, the comparison is not good when you look at our big, big city peers on that. But that's not all just because Chicagoans are ornery or because the police are lazy or whatever. They, I mean, there are a whole bunch of different factors in terms of the, the way gang structures have, have evolved and developed and uh, the, the way the city is laid out neighborhood-wise. And, I mean, there, there, there are reasons for that. I mean, that, that, that maybe are a little elusive, yet they are also important when you're, when you're doing these apples-to-apples comparisons or trying to. Well, don't they know that the highest percentage of the shootings take place in just a handful of precincts and that, in fact, it's a handful of people? Like, isn't it an incredibly small percentage of even the south or west side that is actually doing the shooting and getting shot? I mean, it's certain zones. There's zones that are, you know, more dangerous and more frequent with shootings than others. It's definitely not throughout the entire city that some some would try to portray. I mean, like Oblock obviously is notorious for for that parkway gardens places like that like those are zones that are known or we, we call it getting active tends to get active out there um but it's not like throughout the entire south side or west side of chicago and it's not just the city that is getting a little jumpy right now in the southwest suburbs near the city festival committees are rethinking their events after tinley park canceled the last day of a festival that they had last month. Um, A festival in Evergreen Park has been canceled. One in Chicago Ridge has been canceled. And some of these are months away. But fearing that 
gangs of kids, swarms of kids, maybe not organized gangs, but 400 kids might descend on the city and do some wilding. They call them flash mobs. I think that's a misnomer, but you get the idea. Uh, They're canceling these things. We asked our listeners, would you, if you were in charge of the safety and well-being of your community and your event, would you cancel it? And a third of them said, yeah, I would. About half of them said I would increase security, but I would still hold it. And the rest of them said, the sky's not falling. Hold the damn event. Austin, I'm putting you in charge of this, the Mincing Rascals <laughs> Fest, and it's going to be in Tinley Park or Orland. We'll put it in Orland Park. Well, first of all, we got to decide the lineup for the fest. <laughs> I don't think any of us play a musical instrument besides Eric. So, I mean, it might just be Eric for four hours i'd be glad to, i'd be glad to do it i got i got enough fiddle tunes to last us four hours easy there'll probably be enough people who are fans of eric that, that come and they can keep the peace and i wouldn't expect any any issues well i i don't know i, I it's hard to, you don't know the details of any of these places or what information they're acting on but what it underscores for me is like these are these are in a microcosm the economic effects of people not feeling like they have public safety or they can't count on safety right these are events where people spend money, where people hang out, where people have fun um, and drive activity in their communities. And if people feel like they're unsafe, they're not going to do it. Um, and that has real consequences for people. So, yeah, I don't know. I My personality is to always hold this regardless of what maybe the risks are. But I'm not in the shoes of someone who would actually be accountable for Accountable for it. That's the problem. Like, I would go, but would I put you in harm's way is the question. You know, air quotes around harm's way. How about you, Eric? You're now in charge. Well, Austin has well, abdicated his responsibility. Well, I mean, isn't the question really, are you going to yield to these sorts of threats, these sorts of possibilities? And if you do say, okay, we're not going to, have our evergreen park festival or brighton park festival this year are you going to ever have it again and i just feel like you need to these organizations these communities need to power through this they need to figure out what their security needs are and and make this happen because the alternative just to give up is say well kids these days are going to come and start fights and we can't have that so we're, we're not we're going to stay home and we're going to watch netflix and we're not going to have our have our community events anymore and that's got an economic impact. It's got a social impact. And I, and I think you just you, – you've got to you, – you can't surrender. You can't wave the white flag to this problem. You have to you work your way around it. That's my thought. Yes, yeah. you would have them. Especially now that Netflix is going to start charging you for that account that you're borrowing from me, Eric. Mm-hmm. It's going to be <laughs> more important than ever that we get out. Mm-hmm. It's just so extreme to try to cancel an event, I feel like. There's, there's other things you can do. Beef up security, make it ticketed. I think giving in to your fears of what could happen based off speculation is probably the wrong move. Remember what we all said after 9-11, now the terrorists win. If we, if we don't go outside, that's kind of what it's just it's these little these little crappy terrorists running around ruining things. And now we're all cowering in fear, afraid that they're going to come and get us. I'll tell you what, I'm not. I'm outside this summer. So, <laughs> John, you said you had put this question to your listeners and that most of them said that they did not. They wanted them canceled. Thirty percent said about a third said they would cancel it outright. About forty six percent, I think was the number, said they would hold it with beefed up security. And whatever the difference is, they said, Oh, screw it, just hold it. We're fine. You know, the sky's not falling. 
Um, so uh, the, the number that jumped out at me in that was the number of people that, even with the idea that you could beef up the security and do what it does to a municipality's budget, some of these aren't, how big are some of these neighborhoods or villages? But a third said, no, nah, just don't do it. Just don't go there. It's uh, uh, Talk about what you said, Austin. That's just how frightened people are right now, I think, unnecessarily so. It's one thing to be cautious. It's another thing to be paranoid. Now, look, I don't, I don't know what chatter they're hearing on the Internet. Maybe they're privy to something that, of course, I'm not, but it, it seems a little reactionary to me. If you're, if you're some tiny southwest suburb town manager whose entire goal in life is for nobody to know your name and you just want to like do your city managing stuff, and you see what happened in Tinley Park, I, I, I get it. I, I, I get why they would say, yeah, I'm not putting my neck on the line for this. I don't want to deal with this. It's not so there is obviously a fear and paranoia, but it is at least somewhat informed by a very recent not good thing that happened. Does anybody have anything particular to say about the debt ceiling negotiation? Joe Biden evidently has struck a deal with Speaker McCarthy. Uh, both both camps, Democrats and Republicans, seem to have uh, their uh, criticisms of this deal. Joe Biden gave up too much or Republicans didn't get enough. You hear that from both sides. And the president, Eric, has positioned this as that's how compromise works. It should be that everybody's a little unhappy, but generally agreeable enough with it. Well, Joe Biden certainly backed down from his position that he was never going to negotiate on the debt ceiling. And uh, I understand why he did, because someone has to be the responsible adult in the room and say, we cannot crash the U.S. economy based on this some of this ideological fight over spending and taxes. Uh, I have long felt that this entire debate is just infuriating because we're talking about money that has already been spent. And the question is, are we going to pay the bills? And so you can plunge the nation into default. We've already agreed to this spending. We've already voted for it. I understand the need for negotiating over over spending and taxation, all things. That's what Congress does. But to, to hold the economy hostage for this kind of negotiation, I, I think they ought to eliminate the debt ceiling. But the Democrats have had an opportunity to do that when they were in charge of, of all the branches of government and they didn't do it. And uh, and so I, I can't be too mad at the Republicans for not for not uh, uh, taking advantage when they can they can seize some of it. So last week I talked about this as sort of the one of the ultimate examples of like political showmanship and theater that results in very little if any outcome that affects regular people. And I think it is proven largely to be, to be exactly that we're going to see not the the debt ceiling raised. It's they, they can't even get the political uh, muscle to raise the debt ceiling. It's just a suspension of it. So then you go back and I think it's a suspension for, for two years, essentially you go back, right. Suspend it again. And uh, you're talking about maybe a couple billion dollars in spending reforms in exchange for, I mean, debt that's just growing by trillions of dollars with a T. Um, so it strikes me as really unserious on the spending reform side. And I, I like to the extent that there's compromise and people angry about it. I just don't think that that's actually real uh, be, because the, the, the things that they're debating over are so relatively small um, compared to the to the problem of, of debt. Yeah, I think it just points to, you know, why people are frustrated um, with government 
overall. Like, so much of it, you're kind of like, are we really doing this? We really are not going to, we're, we're really, we're, we're really doing this. And even now you have a, a chorus of Democrats now opposing this debt limit deal. Um, Chewy Garcia, uh, some local news here saying he's going to oppose the bill as well. So we're just going to continue into this cycle when it's just like, bro, can y'all just raise the debt limit? See, like it just move on. Like, this Why is do what we're supposed to do. Now? Right. Like, like, that's the other thing. Like, why do we even do this at this point? And it just keeps, like, kicking the can down, kicking the can down. Um, but it also, we're getting a preview of what Republicans um, in the House and Senate and mainstream-wise, how they view the national debt crisis and what some of the more extreme parts of the party want to do about it. Uh, Ron DeSantis, a 2024 candidate, um, has been pretty open about how he wants to cut welfare programs and Social Security and how he is actually pro-default. <laughs> he thinks that's the burn-it-all-down approach. And you're seeing more and more of that. So I think it's it, it's annoying to see all this, but it is enlightening to hear and see um, some of the positions from people uh, that we are electing to office. I just wonder if someone like Chuy Garcia, if it were really up to him, if his vote was going to be yes or no either way, if he yeah. really would vote against it, this is it, it can end up being... A cheap symbolic vote. If you know it's going to pass, if you know they're going to get enough Democrats yep. and Republicans yep. together, then then he's playing to his his hardcore hardcore of his base, and he's allowed to vote that way. But if it's if it's really up to him, or if this, or even if the if the House Progressive Caucus, or even some of the red hots on the on the right, if it, if it really comes down to yes or no, and then it's kind of my decision or a small group of us, we really want to tank the economy, even though. Joe Biden will probably pay the biggest price for it. Presidents just do in a situation like this. Uh, I, I still say that that it's be suicidal for the Democrats not to extend the ceiling, and I think that that the Republicans it's just vastly, grossly irresponsible if they do that. So, so, uh, but I, I still remain confident that they're going to get enough votes and they're going to they're going to raise it, and everyone's going to be a little sore and unhappy. But that's that it, that's how it has to happen. The, the alternative is really unthinkable. It really is. Yeah. Moody's analyst predicted that if they didn't get it done, if they don't get it done, it's still in play as we speak, stock prices would fall by almost a fifth. We'd lose 20% of the value on the markets. The economy would contract 4%. We'd lose 7 million jobs. Just predictions. But I mean, you you do kind of wonder, though, if maybe the world would still see the United States as a responsible financial player, even though we're screwing it up here. But I mean, we're still the United freaking states. So would it really be that bad? Would this not be something that we could not recover from and that the shock to the system is maybe what we need? Maybe we do need a cold bucket of water. Seven million jobs that you're talking about? Leading to a loss of more than seven million jobs. Yeah, I think it's really easy to talk about getting a bucket of water over your over the head of the of other people, but I, I'm not sure that some of the people who are who are uh, advocating for this would really feel any pain or feel much pain. Well, do you guys think that there's any value though? I mean, did some good come out of this? They're going to claw back unspent COVID funds. They want to make people work until they're 54 in order to get SNAP. Yeah, there's some like very small reforms around the edges, but actually the, the, and small, like small is, is too big of a word to describe them relative to the problem. So I don't know what I would, whatever. Uh, you're, 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 you're thinking monetarily, right? 
small yeah. monetarily. Okay, but yes. Yes. I think big, okay, small monetarily. But to me, you know what I'd like to see? The IRS run more efficiently. And it, that's one of the things that was in this deal, right? The two elephants in the room are Social Security and Medicare. And unless you're talking about those things in the context of the debt problem, it's not really a serious conversation, slowing the growth and spending in those two things. So, but to your point, the economic consequences of defaulting, right? These are really, really serious consequences, but it underscores that there are going to be and have been serious economic consequences because of this massive accumulation of debt and printing of money. And that's that is delaying the inevitable if we don't take action to actually balance budgets, uh, cut spending and maybe even raise taxes in return for that in some ways. So you that is really the discussion. And I think people in favor of the debt limit say, well, the debt limit, you know, raises these discussions every couple of years. And that's true. And people are now talking about the debt and budgets and all this stuff, which is generally good. But the outcomes of those discussions are are never have never been anywhere close to sufficient to moving the needle on on this. Which, so what, and I think most people agree, like that that's too. We need to reduce the debt. So what would you cut? What would you do to bring us back in line? I think it's all about slowing growth in spending. So you have to have a smart spending cap. But this that, does uh, cap growth by one percent outside of defense, uh, right? Right, but outside of. Uh, uh, outside of certain areas. So it doesn't apply to the whole of government. Don't you go attacking the Social Security and Medicare that John and I are going to be counting on? <laughs> I honestly think that's the only thing, unless there's some kind of generational warfare on this, which is warranted in some ways where it's like you shouldn't have wealthy, retired people getting Social Security. That, like, I, that's not fair. Uh, and I, I, that's that's not a good way to run that system. Even though they've well, paid into it their whole lives and well, paid a lot into it their whole lives. At some, at some point, you have to change th- that system. Maybe it's a gradual phase out. Maybe you start today. Those people aren't getting it, right? But it's the same thing with, like, Illinois pensions where they're like, well, we've paid into exactly. it their whole life. But it's like, at what point does the Ponzi scheme stop? The like, new hires then don't enjoy the same benefits as the old teachers. Right. But then you take out... Uh, if you if you don't uh, the the new people coming in if they're not contributing and not getting it maybe it's basically a tax on the young to subsidize the benefits of older wealthier people. John and, and I are very in favor of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just the, the Medicare Social Security discussion is fascinating. Just just today, Kevin McCarthy announced that he's assembling a commission to look at potential cuts to uh, Medicare and Social Security. However, back in January, he said that Medicare and Social Security is off the table. Um, so I just it's it's fascinating uh, when you do look at the budget. Those are the two things you would have to really examine the most. That'd be the, the, the biggest like, OK, we can make a big cut here. But the thing is, it impacts so many people. I just I wouldn't touch it. I think it is a, a scarlet letter um, for electoral politics to touch it. Um, and I think whoever is going to be a politician who says, yeah, let's do it, uh, is in for a rude awakening at the polls because uh, that, that's not a winning message. Trump is super anti. He's using this as saying these Republicans, they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Like the, the Republican Party isn't even talking about really seriously this stuff anymore. Yeah, Austin makes a good point that that. Uh, you know, when you when wealthy people, Donald Trump gets Social Security checks, presumably. I mean, and it's hmm. it is absurd in a way. And 
and John Williams says, you know, it's not fair. And that's true that it's not fair uh, because people have paid into it their whole lives. But the question becomes, does it make any economic sense? Is there a way we can do this? Because we're trying to save the program for people who really do need it. Donald Trump does not need a social security check. Uh, you know, my parents arguably don't need their social security check. Um, but there are a lot of people who would starve without it and if you're going to, to you know let, let the whole program go bankrupt because if you you don't want it to be means tested then you may be you, you may be ending up for a real crisis where we have just a lot of hurt feelings and anger going forward so i mean it's it's an it's a conversation but but again of course and now that every, I'm going to make everybody right, uh, Brandon's right that it is a third rail politically that people like me and John Williams we vote <laughs> We're out there. We're out there voting, and 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 you young people, you guys just don't vote like we do, and and so uh, uh, you're you're right that the touching that is going to be just almost unthinkable. What about this, Eric? I would agree to say, relative to the more well off, that you don't cap the income level at which you pay into social security yeah. i don't know what the number is now say it's one hundred fifteen thousand dollars after Some, that something like that yeah. you get a bump because now you've paid in all that you have to pay over the course of a year i think you should pay on that on all of the income that you make if you make a million dollars you're going to pay social security on all million dollars uh, and maybe you won't get all of that back someday but um, it would seem to me like if for the first half of the year you're used to making those social security contributions your lifestyle doesn't change that much, except you don't get the bump at the end of the year when maybe you pass that threshold. I would continue to tax those people for the entirety of their income, just as, oh, okay, there's one. Austin, that doesn't solve the problem, but I'm making progress here. That's good. And that's more than anyone's discussed. And I mean, like the whole thing, it's like talking about, you know, I don't know, I can't come up with a witty analogy here, but talking about debt without talking about these two programs is silly. Yeah, that's not very witty. Last week, we got to wrap this up, guys. But Austin, when you were um, talking with Monica and Eric about the um, problem that Monica Ng was having with her property taxes, you said that you have been looking for a house. Are you guys looking for a house in the city of Chicago? Yeah. And maybe some – I actually ran into our friend Mark Bazer on the street, and I was telling him I was looking at a couple of places in Oak Park. So he's being an Oak Park sort of booster. Everybody, that's a lovely neighborhood. But the taxes are high, I think, in Oak Park, too. They're really high. And what are you discovering about the real estate market generally? You're looking to buy a home, not a condo or rent, right? Yeah. Uh, condo, we look at, at a couple of condos. We need some kind of outdoor space with a yard. So uh, it's been mostly single-family homes or condos. It's been hot, like in neighborhoods that we're looking at, which is a lot of like North northwest side like around lincoln square area maybe a couple more towards the lake and more like uh uptown area and then a couple in the suburbs in oak park like offers are coming in <laughs> really hot and heavy we put in offers on a couple places we got beat because there were seven or eight other better ones wow yeah we need we need to build more housing in chicago uh we should get rid of a ton of zoning regulations where aldermen get to control every single thing that's built in their ward we need to make housing more affordable. And I had that view before uh, I started trying to buy property. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it, it casts – and the other thing I was thinking about too was how different the actual experiences of Chicago, like we were talking about on like, well, on the Riverwalk, it's lovely on Memorial Day weekend. It's like, well, the real estate market in these 
neighborhoods is like super hot and very difficult to 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 buy in and that's a reflection of lots of people wanting to live there and move there uh and that's not really the conversation that we hear on that 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 specific or granular level about chicago oh yeah chicago's so bad then why are rents so high yeah or or, exactly. or home prices i wasn't exactly sure what the um takeaway would be from that fact i sent you i screen grabbed an article i was reading in the new york times sunday magazine about how vienna really has figured out public housing and housing costs in general and that in austria the percent of income that a well-to-do couple would pay for their for their residence is like somewhere between four and eight percent think about that if your mortgage or rent payment was the sort of economic decision you have to make about where you're going to eat at a restaurant, that it would be that much of a financial burden to you. Because what we spend on entertainment and dining out is what people in Vienna spend as a percentage of their income on their residence. And the stat that wow. I shared with with you, because 80% of the people in that city and country qualify for public housing. So public housing is a different animal, right? They said in the United States, one in four homes that are purchased are purchased by people who have no intention of living there, but they buy up starter homes, they make the rent as difficult as they can, and they squeeze Austin Berg or either out of a home or make it very expensive for people to rent. I guess at the end of the day, that's about the housing stock. We just need more homes built. Exactly. We need more homes. And it's like there's tons and tons and tons of people who can build homes. But because of all of the regulation and red tape, it makes it very, very, very difficult. And there's a really good article by Matt Iglesias, um, formerly at Vox, he now is Substack um, in Bloomberg, about kind of that Vienna um, article. And his his takeaway from the left is here's why we shouldn't build public more public housing uh in the u.s it's a really interesting article yeah. but yeah it's it's tough and we have it good here in chicago compared to some other cities that's the crazy part in terms of home home prices oh no okay yeah, yes we do yes we do um we got to wrap this up guys uh one of these days i'm going to have a conversation about succession but we probably have to have it sooner than later since the series just wrapped up brandon did they get it right was the final episode you- of succession correct Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm I'm gonna click out because I, I haven't seen it yet. Um, and you guys should get you guys should get a little group of of goes who've watched the whole season and do a special podcast. And uh, uh, but until I watch it, I have to. I don't want to hear a word. They all die in a boating accident, Eric. It's 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 terrible. They're on a yacht. They, I'm more a Ted Lasso guy. That's more my beat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then that's uh, maybe we'll touch on both those next time. Okay, that's Brandon Pope. There's Austin Berg. And Eric Zorn, who's going to finish the series soon. Yes, I will. I promise. We're produced by Ben Anderson and, and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pot on you next week. See okay, you guys fellas. soon. Good job. Thanks, fellas. Thanks. Thanks. All right, y'all. I'll catch you later. Yeah, you bet. Good job, Brent. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. Radio.com.